Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast. In this episode, I'm bringing you the audio from an impressions vlog that came out recently, and in that one, I discussed four new games that I was able to play. Now, I'll be covering them in alphabetical order, and the first one is Gold West, then we have Isle of Cats, after that, we're going to be talking about Mechanica, and we will finish this off with Vienna. Now, I understand that you might not be interested in listening to all of those different sections, so feel free to go to the description of this podcast to find timestamps for those individual games. Now, while you're there, you will also find a link to the vlog that these came from, and if you have any comments about anything that I say, then please go over to the vlog on YouTube and comment over there. Now, the final thing that I'd like to say before we start talking about games is the fact that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that John Gets Games gets through its Patreon campaign. Now, you can learn more about that at patreon.com slash Games. and if you enjoy this audio version of my vlogs, then I hope you would consider directly supporting the channel. Alright, let's now start talking about games, and the first one for today is Gold West. Now, this is not a new game. In fact, it came out back in 2015, and surprisingly enough, there's another game I'll be talking about later on that also came out in 2015. Uh, but either way, Gold West is a game that was designed by J. Alex Kevern, and it's a game I was very excited to play back in 2015. In fact, I played it at uh, Board Game Geek Con right then when it came out, and I enjoyed it quite a lot. I ended up getting a copy of my own, and I played it a few times, and at some point over the last four years, I gifted my copy to another friend who seemed like they liked it more than me. Now, about a week ago, I was at a game night, and I was uh, the uh, situation arose where Gold West was like the right game to play. Like enough people were interested in playing it, and it was actually not the copy I gifted; it was another friend's copy. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the experience, and I decided why not talk about it here in the impressions vlog. It's been four years since I've talked about it on the YouTube channel. Now, let's talk briefly about how the game plays. Now, on your turn, the first thing that you're going to do is activate your Moncala track on your own player board. Now, I say track because it is four different segments. It's not a loop. And you take everything from that spot, and then you drop one um, item into every single bucket above it until you run out, and then everything else extra gets piled up on the table, and those are the resources you can use in this turn. Now, you can do a wide variety of things with these resources. If you have wood or stone, then you can create camps. If you have wood and stone, you can create a settlement. And the way that works is you look out to the main board in the middle of the table, and you're going to take any one of the faces up tokens, and you will immediately get the resources that are depicted on that token. Now, with those resources, you have to put all of them down into one of the four buckets on your Mancala track, and the farther away you put them down from the end of the track, the more points you get. So if you are uh, planning ahead really well, then you can put all of these new resources into the very last bucket, which immediately gets you three points just for activating it. But you have to uh, maybe put some more stuff in there to be able to uh, have enough stuff to actually Moncala out of that location. Uh, now, if you don't have the resources to actually build a settlement, that's fine. You can loot and still take a token. So every single turn in this game, you're going to be grabbing a token from somewhere on the board, and it will have a variety of different uh, resources on it that go onto your Moncala track that you then activate later to then use. Now, a big part of this game is mining thematically. Obviously, it's called Gold West, and there is uh, gold, bronze, and silver in the game, and those are also resources that can fall out of your Moncala track and to be used. Now, you can uh, get rid of these in uh, uh, kind of set collection ways. There are cards that say, you know, uh, get rid of two gold and two um, uh, silver, and then you get this much victory points. Uh, there are also ways that you can just dump your metal to go up these little caravan tracks, which will give you points, and there is a boomtown spot in the bottom of the board which uh, consumes a couple of resources and gives you conditional endgame uh, victory points. Now, 
that's essentially the game. Uh, you just do that every single one of your turns, and in a four-player game, you're going to take ten turns, and then the game is going to be over. Now, I say that's essentially what you're doing mechanically in the game, but a big part of this game has to do with the color of tokens that you are taking from the middle of the board. Now, on your player board, you have a Moncala track, but then you also have these rows that are associated with the four different colored tokens. And every time you take a token from the middle of the board and grab the resources from it, you then flip it over and put it down onto the applicable track unless you loot it. In that case, you don't get the token. Uh, but when the game is over, players are going to get uh, victory points based off of uh, if they have the majority of that specific type of token in their tracks down below. And if you end up building settlements, which cost a wood and a stone instead of one or the other, then that token actually gets two bumps. So it's kind of like, uh, it really helps you with that, uh, that competition. So that's a, a kind of general overview of how Gold West works. And I have to admit that uh, when we sat down to play it, we kind of got a reteach because it had been years. Um, I was immediately struck at how simple the rules were. I mean, I, there's some details I didn't cover right there, but that's essentially what's going on in this game. And as we were playing the game, I definitely felt like I was making smart uh, and crunchy decisions. Like, uh, you, the things that you are doing have serious ramifications on the future. The things that your opponents are doing and what they potentially could do could really affect how you want to plan ahead because if you really want to go after that uh, card that's, you know, two gold and two silver, you don't want to plan towards that if your opponent is just going to be able to take it away from you and then you're stuck with this gold and silver and you have to find something else to do with it. Um, so I, I really enjoyed the simplicity of the rule set compared to the depth of the decisions that I was making in the game. Uh, I think at the end of the game, it probably took about an hour and 15 minutes or so for the four-player game, maybe an hour and a half. So there's quite a bit going on, even though you only take these 10 turns. And it seems so simple, right? You just like activate a spot, get these resources, take a token, which gives you resources that goes onto your track, rinse and repeat, keep doing the same thing. But but you really are jockeying back and forth for these majority tracks. You also get bonus points if you have all um, a big contiguous group of your uh, camps and settlements out on the map. So you are kind of, you're able to take tokens from anywhere, but you really want to take it from next to where you've gone already because that gives you extra points. This game gives you a lot of points for doing a wide variety of things. And I was really impressed with it. I'm happy that um, two of my friends actually have copies of this one because um, after playing it last week, I could easily see myself um, uh, being happy to play it again um, soon. You know, it, it plays very quickly. It teaches so fast. And I think maybe the reason I'm harping on that is because lately I've been playing a lot of very complicated Euros like Marco Polo 2 and Maracaibo and Trismegistus, which um, are obviously heavier than Gold West. I do not want to um, intone that they are similar in weight, but they're not that dissimilar. Like, I would not say Gold West is a light game from my personal perspective, and it just felt refreshing to be playing a Euro game with crunchy decisions, lots of stuff to think about that took like 10 minutes to teach compared to like 30 to 45 to 50 minutes that a lot of the, uh, the crunchy Euros that I've been playing lately have been. So, um, yeah, it was fun to play a, um, I guess, about four-year-old game because it came out near the end of 2015, uh, and hopefully I'll have more opportunities to try it again in the future. All right, let's now move on to the second game, and that one is Isle of Cats. Now, this is a very new game as compared to Gold West. Uh, it just got sent out to the Kickstarter backers of the campaign, and I was one of those people. I, I paid for a copy of this game, and it was sent over to me. Now, before I say anything else, I need to be very clear about my biases with this game. Uh, there are two big ones. The first one is the fact that I was paid to make a sponsored tutorial playthrough for this game for the Kickstarter campaign. Um, now, I liked the game enough that I decided to spend my own money to back the campaign, but I was paid to make content for this game. 
Now, the other big bias is the fact that I am friends with the designer. Uh, uh, that is Frank West, and I met him several years ago at Gen Con. Uh, we totally hit it off, played a bunch of games there, and we've played games at Essen multiple years in a row, at Gamma in Reno. We've played <laughs> tens of games across the entire world, and I think he is a totally awesome person. So I am quite biased <laughs> when it comes to this game, because obviously he designed and published this game. Uh, now, with all of that in mind, I have now played the final copy once, but I also played the prototype copy a couple times, so I effectively have like three plays in with the final version of the rules, and I still want to talk about my opinion, even though I am very much biased. Now, let's talk briefly about how the game works. So thematically, you are sailing up to an island full of exotic cats, and you are trying to rescue as many of them as you can before a big bad person shows up and destroys the island, stripping it for their resources. That's the thematic uh, reason for the game. Realistically, you're just going to play through five rounds, and you're going to be picking up these different colored cats, and they are uh, illustrated beautifully, <laughs> wonderfully really, on these different shaped tiles. So they have a variety of different uh, orientations and shapes, like kind of tetrisy pieces or polyominoes, and you are going to be drafting cards at the start of each one of the five rounds in order to get the resources that you need, uh, specifically the baskets that you need, to actually hold these cats up onto your deck. Now, the way drafting works in this game is you're going to deal out seven cards to each player, and then each person draws two cards uh, from that hand of seven and puts it down into a separate spot from your hand. And then they pass five, then you get five from the person to your right, you draft two, pass three, get three, draft two, pass one, get one. Then you have seven cards in this pile that you just drafted, and now everyone simultaneously buys those cards. So you have to spend fish, and at the start of each round you get 20 fish. And each card tells you how much fish it costs to add that card into your hand. So it's two discrete areas for cards in your area, and if you don't buy a card, then you just discard it. Now that means you could draft a card that you don't want, that you know an opponent wants, and just not buy it and throw it into the discard pile. So hate drafting can certainly come into play here. Now, uh, after that, you will go through a couple of phases, and I'm not going to uh, go into all of the specifics, but the main thing that you are doing is using the baskets in your hand to pick up these cats. Now, the player order is going to change around each turn based off of how many boots show up on those cards, and then in the player order, you can just pick the cats up from the island. The number of fish you have to spend for those cats depends on which part of the island they fall down onto, so there is a serious economy that you have to pay attention to while you're playing this game. You are trying to buy cards that are going to be good for you, but you don't want to spend so much fish that you don't have enough fish to actually rescue those cats. I guess you put the fish in the baskets to lure them onto your ship. Now, uh, realistically, why are you trying to do this from a points perspective? Well, because at the end of the game, if you have groups of cats of the same color touching each other in a, uh, a kind of a contiguous area on your ship, then you will get points for them. And the more cats in that group, the more points you get. Now, if that was the entire game, then this game would, I think, be fine, but this game really gets amazing when it comes to the lesson cards. Now, these are also in that big deck, and you are also going to be drafting them from those hands. And these, if they are private lessons, go face down in front of you, and they give you a conditional end game objective. Now, there is a wide variety of these in the game, and they really motivate you to do some strange things with the cats that you're putting down onto your ship. Now, you could also put treasure onto your ship. Uh, there are cards that you can play to get treasure, which help you fill stuff in. But this is not a 
uh, puzzly kind of game where you just have to make sure there are no gaps. In fact, there might be cards, uh, pri private lessons that you take that really motivate you to leave gaps. Um, they might say, you know, uh, if you don't touch this room or that room, you get bonus points. But at the end of the game, you actually lose points for each room that's not fully filled in. So you have this wonderful um, kind of uh, push and pull sensation going on as you're playing. You're like, okay, well, I have this card that says, don't put anything in this room of my ship. I'm going to lose five points for it, but the card's going to give me, I forget how many, like 10 points or something like that. So you're still netting points. And that means you can ignore that room and focus on the other rooms to try and make sure that they are fully filled in. Now, uh, there are lessons that do a, a ton of things. Like, for instance, the very first lesson I took in the game I played last week said, have the center row of your ship full. So that's the widest row from one end to the other and have no gaps. And if you do that, then you get a bunch of points. So right from the beginning of the game, I started focusing on getting cats all the way down that line. And then I worked from that point because whenever you add new tiles onto your ship, they have to go next to a previously placed tile. Now, there are other cards that you can get that say, like, you get points for the cats around the perimeter of the ship. So now you go around the outside and you're maybe ignoring the middle. And there's just a bunch of other things. Now, in the game that we played, um, it was a four-player game. And I was somewhat experienced with the game, obviously. And it was a first play for everyone else. And I smoked the competition. Uh, I think that's because I was experienced with the game. And I just kept taking lessons. Now, I had a lesson that gave me points at the end of the game for each lesson that I had. So obviously, I was motivated to take lessons. But you get 20 fish at the start of each round, and it only costs two fish to put a lesson down in front of you. Now, there are also public lessons that everyone can vie for that I don't really need to talk about. But in this play, I just went crazy on lessons. I got nine of them by the end of the game, and I was able to get points for seven out of those nine. And then, of course, the last two were each worth a point because I had a lesson that gave me points for my lessons. So for me, it was this wonderful thing where I was trying to balance, like having the center row filled up and I was trying to have uh, a certain number of treasure on the ship and a certain number of uh, groups of uh, families on the ship and all this kind of stuff. Whereas my opponents had like two or three lessons because they kept passing on them in the draft and I kept hoovering them up. So they had a little bit less to pay attention to and my score just blew the rest of them out of the water. And I think that lessons are certainly important in this game, uh, but they're not necessarily the only thing. Uh, I actually talked to Frank about this and, uh, you know, it, he definitely agreed that lessons are certainly important, but the person with the most lessons is not necessarily going to be the person who always wins. In this case, it was a bit of an extreme case, I think. Also, I was pretty experienced to know how to balance all of these different things. But um, you can certainly win this game with just a couple of lessons compared to somebody who has a lot of them if you score them very well and if you get a lot of points for the cat families. Um, now, I mentioned before, you get those points no matter what private lessons you have. So there are a lot of ways that you can play through this game. And the way you get these lessons is really going to dictate one play to the next. So I've played this game a few times now, and I effectively played a couple of hands, a couple of people in the tutorial video. So I've seen a lot of ways to try and capitalize on those lessons. And I've really enjoyed seeing how the way you build out the ship is totally different from one game to the next because of this. Um, you know, you might have a private lesson that wants you to have like a five by five area of one specific type of fit, uh, uh, not fish, uh, cats, or uh, other ones want just like complete columns full of treasure. So now you don't even want any cats in those. And uh, the uh, the version of the game that I had had some like Kickstarter promos, which actually had uh, some more of these lesson modules that you can kind of swap out with the ones that you uh, start with in the game. So I think at this point, I've talked maybe a little bit enough about Isle of Cats. I feel like I'm kind of rambling 
rambling. Uh, but the last thing to say about a different game that's kind of associated with Isle of Cats is the fact that there are some definite similarities between Isle of Cats and Bunny Kingdom. Now, Bunny Kingdom is a game that I, uh, Frank bought at Gen Con when I met him that year, and I actually played the game with him. Uh, and I know that he was pretty enamored with that game. And you can definitely see parts of that game in Isle of Cats. The way the draft works is very similar to Bunny Kingdom, where you draft two cards. Although in Bunny Kingdom, you don't have to buy those cards. They just go right into your hand. And in uh, Bunny Kingdom, you're all playing on a communal board in the middle, whereas in Isle of Cats, you have your own boards. But Bunny Kingdom also had end game goals that you take from the draft. So uh, there are definitely some uh, uh, things in Isle of Cats that uh, you can see direct correlations between it and Bunny Kingdom. But Isle of Cats is very puzzly in its nature, whereas Bunny Kingdom was about uh, a lot of majorities in the middle of the map and like, um, you know, trying to edge people out from different locations. Um, I still really like Bunny Kingdom, and honestly, after playing Isle of Cats several times over the last six months or so with the prototype and the final one, I kind of want to go back and play Bunny Kingdom and see how different it feels, because I remember really enjoying that game as well. And I think, um, honestly, that they are both great, and in general, I love polyomino, tetris kind of thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if I played Bunny Kingdom next week if I decided that Isle of Cats was my preferred of the two, but uh, they are both really good games, and I think I should stop talking about them. Okay, let's now move on to the third game, and that one is Mechanica. Now, this is a relatively new game. I think it came out in 2019, and I just got a copy that was sent over to me by the publisher. Now, this one is published by Resonum Games, and they also made Visitor in Blackwood Grove. Uh, they sent that to me last year, and that was a light, like 10 to 15 minute deduction, asymmetric role style game that I really quite liked. Uh, but either way, Mechanica is significantly different from that. Now, what's going on in this game is each player is effectively operating a Roomba factory. So uh, little automated vacuums that scoot around the floor trying to vacuum up your stuff. Now, thematically, um, these are supposed to be kind of like infiltrating humans' homes so that they can overthrow the human race. It's got a very tongue-in-cheek kind of thing going on with these like, you know, cute little robots that definitely are not threatening people. Uh, but anyway, the way the game works is you have this factory in front of you with these um, three different lines. Now, these basic little uh, robot vacuum robots are created on the left side, and then every single round, everyone is going to simultaneously operate their factory where you move all of your robots from the left side over to the right, or you keep moving them until they hit something that stops them. Now, at the start of the game, there's nothing to stop them. The basic robot goes all the way across, it lands inside of a truck, and then on your turn, you can sell any of the robots in your trucks for money. And you can also get rid of robots from your trucks to match up with some blueprints, which I'll talk about later. Now, after that, you then, on your turn, can spend your money in order to put upgrades down into your factory. You can put forks down so that the robots can go different ways, and then in the middle of the table, there is this wonderful spinning wheel gadget, which has a market for these improvements. Now, uh, this gadget actually fits inside of the box. You play with the box in the middle of the table and you uh, just buy them from the middle of this area, and every turn you kind of spin it so that everything gets a little bit cheaper. So it's a really nice way to hold on to all of these things and show a market. Uh, now, when you buy these, you can buy as many of these different improvements as you want, and you put them down into your factory, and they kind of puzzle piece themselves into your factory. So uh, some of the improvements might be a duplicator. Uh, you know, one type of robot goes in, and then it stops, and then next turn, when it moves again, uh, there will be two robots of that type. It duplicated. Uh, there are also upgraders, which 
brings a, you know, a basic one turns into a, uh, a white one turns into an orange one, which is the middle level, and an orange one turns into a purple one, which is like an anti-gravity vacuuming unit. It's like the best type. Um, there are also types that can rip uh, one robot into three smaller ones. There's ones that can like throw your robot across your factory and give you extra money based off of the stuff that it flies over. There's a, a decent variety of these uh, different things that go on in the game, and they come out randomly as you're playing. Now, um, what you are trying to realistically do is just make as many robots as you can, and you want to upgrade them into the better levels, because the better the robot is, the more money you are going to get when it eventually gets over to those uh, trucks and gets sold. Now, um, I have played this game once. Uh, I, I read the rules a couple times, and I finally got this one played. And uh, it was a three-player game. It was just a few days ago. And I'm going to start this off by saying that I really enjoyed a lot of the different pieces of this game, but it just did not seem to come together. And in fact, I'm not too sure I'm going to be playing it again, which is why I'm covering it right now. So let's start off by saying that this is a really short game, like surprisingly short. Uh, like I don't mind short games, but in this game, when you're playing three players, there is a deck of these improvements that come out. And once the entire deck of improvements have come out and have left the market, then the game uh, ends. You finish the round and the game is over. Now, there's only 21 of them in that stack in a three-player game, and you bring out a new one on each player's turn. So that means seven turns for the whole game, and that's not very much when you consider that these improvements in your factory stop your robots. So again, if there's nothing in the way, then the robot goes all the way across and heads over into the... Um, the trucks. But if you have that duplicator, then the robot goes here, and the next turn, it will keep moving on. So that's kind of a two-step process to get to the end. Well, this game seems to be all about making a cool factory where you're uh, creating new robots, and robots are splitting up, and they're getting upgraded, and they're getting thrown across the factory floor. And a lot of these things stop your robot. Not all of them do. The one that throws it across the factory floor does not stop the robot. But enough of the important things stop your robot to the point where it seemed like the game was just getting going when it ended after seven turns. Like, at the seventh turn, I had this awesome factory. I had all the stuff going on, but it was like two or three stops along the way to have like a single white one come in, it gets upgraded into an orange. Okay, now the orange one goes over here and it gets duplicated and then it goes over here and then it gets split up into three and I can't remember exactly how my factory worked, but it was very effective at doing stuff with robots, but it was way too slow to be competitive in the game. Now, there is another big thing to talk about that um, really did not work for us and that is the blueprints. Now, there are two different stacks of these and they are essentially um, kind of set collection that you're trying to go for or I guess not really set collection, but they say they give you a certain types of robots that you want to get rid of in a round in order to get a bunch of money. Now, at the end of the game, the person with the most money wins, and um, the money that you get from the blueprints goes into a little vault that you cannot spend. Now, that blueprint might say something like um, get rid of two of the white basic robots and one of the awesome purple ones, or maybe it's three purple ones or something like that, and the amount of points that you get for doing those is huge. Like, um, even the lower level ones uh, might be like 10 or 15 points, but some of the mid to high level ones could be like 30 or 35 points that you get for cashing these in, and as soon as one of the two is done, then you kind of prop them up, and at the end of the round, they will go away. So multiple people can do them within a given round, but what we found was 
you can't really plan ahead for what's coming. Um, you know, if somebody completes one this round, you deal out two random new ones, and they might work out really well for the type of factory that you have right now, or they might not. Because again, remember, all of your little robots are getting stopped here and stopped here and stopped there. So you don't actually, at least from my experience in just one game, have that much flexibility to be like, oh, okay, the blueprint this round is the purple and two white. I'm going to change things up and have the two purple and the white. Uh, and in fact, in our play, um, near the end of the game, I was able to make like three purple at the end of the round. And then all of the blueprints that we saw were like white, like the basic ones. Whereas at the beginning of the game, they were all the really heavy hitting stuff. So when the dust settled at the end of our game, um, one person had like 101 points because they completed a couple of blueprints. Another person had um, like 40 and another person had like 30 and that other person was me. I can't remember the exact score, but I didn't get any of the blueprints done because I was never in a situation to be able to capitalize on the random blueprint that showed up on that given turn. And that huge discrepancy in the scores felt very strange, especially at the end of the game, both of my opponents thought that I had the coolest factory. They're like, the game seems to be about making a cool factory. And it just seems strange that the person who came dead last seemed to be doing the thing that the game wanted them to do the most, whereas the person who won had a much more simple factory. They were just able to get those blueprints done. So maybe I'm just really bad at Mechanica after that one play. I guess maybe I was just trying to make an overly complicated factory that was way too slow overall. But it was not even that satisfying of a play for my opponents who won as well. So at the end of the day, I feel like there is a really cool game in here somewhere, but it's getting stifled in a couple different ways. Like I feel like instead of taking seven turns, you should be able to take 12 or like 14 turns. Like this game still would not be that long. It just seven turns is not that much. And I am not convinced at all that the blueprints add anything to the game. And they definitely seem to hurt it in the uh, current incarnation of the game. So I hate to be this negative overall because the game is so cute and I love building factories and I love building engines. And this game definitely has those types of things going on, but it just did not seem to come to fruition. And Again, I only play the game once, but I don't like trying to play games with friends that I know that I'm probably going to dislike already. You know, I say, hey, you know, I want to play Mechanica. And they're like, oh, have you played it before? Is it good? I don't want to be like, I don't want to lie. And I also don't want to say, yeah, I played it before. I think it has really big flaws. Let's try it. They're going to want to play something else. Like, it's their game night. They're not there to, like, experiment with this type of stuff. So... I think in the end, I am pretty disappointed with Mechanica. I, I really wish it was a little bit longer and a lot less swingy overall because there is a glimmering, wonderful game somewhere inside of here, and maybe it just needs some house rules or something. I'm not really sure overall, but at the end of the day, that's where I land with Mechanica. All right, let's now move into the final game I'll be talking about today, and that one is Vienna. Now, as I mentioned back at the beginning, uh, this is the second game that came out in 2015 that I'm talking about today, which is surprising, because normally all of the games I talk about in these impressions vlogs are brand new. Uh, now, this came out back in 2015. It was published by Schmidt Spiel, and then in 2018, uh, Tasty Mitchell Games got the license, and they put out a version of it, and I had never heard of it until about three or four days ago when I was at a game night and a friend of mine had it in their bag because they bought it for $5 at a local bookstore. <laughs> they had the 2018 version of it and I was like, what's that, Vienna? Like, that sounds like a Euro game and I like Euro games. And so uh, we ended up uh, putting it out on the table and the artist for this game is Michael Menzel. So once the board got put out onto the table, it just looked like such 
a generic Euro game, because Michael Menzel does the uh, boards for lots of kind of Euro-y looking games set in the, you know, 1700s or whatever. Now, in this game, we are in Vienna, and the main mechanic of this game is dice worker placement, but you place them down onto a communal area of the board, and in particular, it's a road. Now, it's effectively a long straight line, but it's been kind of woven around the streets of Vienna, and on each one of the rounds, you're going to roll your four dice in front of you, and then when it's your turn, you're going to put one or two dice out onto a location on this road. Now, every one of the spots on the road tells you what the dice value has to be in order to place there. Um, sometimes it might say like two or three, um, and other times it says things like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, or twelve. Now, um, as I said, you can put one or two dice out. So obviously, if you want to get to eleven, you're going to need to put out a five and a six, uh, but you're not allowed to place out three dice. Now, most of the spots on this road do nothing when you put these dice out. Once everyone has put all of their dice down onto the board, then you go through the road uh, activating every single one of the actions in order. Now, no two players can be on the same spot, so it definitely has a worker placement vibe going on there. And the order in which these go is important uh, because you might have locations farther down the road that need to spend coins in order to get you victory points. And you might not have the coins yet, but that's fine because up above that, you went onto a spot that gives you the coins. So you're kind of setting yourself up. Now, the big catch here is the fact that if you ever want to place your dice behind your farthest down place die, then you have to pay a penalty. I think it was just one coin, but even one coin is a lot in this game. So you are motivated to go from low to high, but the really powerful stuff is near the end, and there can be some big point swings if you get a spot versus another player. So you are kind of motivated to very quickly get to the very end, even if you might have more dice left over, and then if you want to go behind another die you've placed, you have to start spending those coins. And again, there are several spots on the board that let you spend coins to get points. Now, this is a Euro game where you want to have the most points at the end of the game, and it's a race game, actually. You just keep playing rounds until one person hits at least 25 points, uh, and we played a five-player game, which is the maximum player count, and I think everybody started with five points. So effectively, everyone is racing to get 20 points overall in the game, and there are a couple different spots where you can get like three, four, five, or even six points, I think, one of the spots. Now, near the very end of the track, there are these uh, four locations that let you compete with your uh, neighbors. So now this has to do with the icons that are on cards in front of you. Some of the spots in the middle of the board let you get new cards, and they have like crosses on them, um, nobleman hat type things, and another crowns, I think, crowns on them. And so there are spots on the board where you can go and it says you will get two points if you have more crosses than the person to your right and more crosses than the person to your left. And if you have uh, more than this person but not that person, then you just get two points instead of getting four. So you definitely have a competition going on as you're trying to get these cards in the middle. And that's essentially the game. I don't really need to talk about more details. It's, it's a pretty breezy rules teach overall. And it was a pretty breezy game. Uh, we played this one with five players, and I think it was a first-time play for everyone, and it came in at like an hour, maybe a little, maybe like an hour, 15 overall. I wasn't staring at my watch, but I really enjoyed the way the game flowed. I mean, it was very light overall compared to um, most Euro games. Like, it is in the medium weight area, but it's on the very lightest edge of that. Like, I would not call this a filler by any means, but... You know, there's no real, you know, like getting resources, trying to put it together to construct buildings or anything like that. You're just trying to get coins. Oh, also, you can spend coins to manipulate your dice. So coins are really important. They're definitely things that you want to have. But also, it's a race game. So you want to go to the spot that lets you spend three coins to get five victory points because that's a quarter of the points that you need to actually end the game overall. 
Now, there's a little bit of endgame scoring at the end, so just getting to the threshold doesn't mean you are going to win, but it definitely helps. And uh, I, I enjoyed the game. Uh, I think uh, the general mood around the table was everyone thought it was fine. I think I liked it maybe more than some of the other people around the table, but nobody really saw any flaws. It was really just kind of acknowledging that it's a relatively light Euro-style game, and I'm curious to try it with um, less people, actually. Uh, five players worked surprisingly well, but in a five-player game, you only have four dice, whereas I believe in a four and less player game, you actually get five dice, which is going to increase the variety of things that you can do out there on the map. It would not surprise me if four players is best, so um, I don't have a copy of this game, but my friend Mac does, uh, but I think I will likely be able to play this one again if he keeps bringing it over to game night, and I certainly would not say no. Uh, I have I've been playing, as I mentioned in the Gold West segment, I've been playing a lot of complicated Euro games, super crunchy games with like 40 to 50 minute teaches. So playing a game like Vienna with like a 10 minute teach that plays in about an hour, that's not super crunchy, but definitely has some good decisions, some good blocking, some good um, highs and good lows. I really found that refreshing. <laughs> it's not a particularly new game and I don't know if people are making games like this right now. I definitely feel like maybe it's my personal selection bias, but it seems like more and more Euros that I'm playing recently are just more and more complicated. And I keep playing games and I'm like, oh, this game is great. I wish they'd take 20% of the complexity off. Um, so maybe that's just where the industry is right now, or maybe my picker is just a little bit off and I'm gravitating towards games that are more complicated than I would prefer to teach. Um, you know, a game like Vienna and going back to Gold West, I wouldn't mind teaching these games 10 times because it takes 10 minutes to teach them as opposed to something like Maracaibo, which is a game that I love, but I've played it like four or five times and I've taught it like four or five times and I'm getting sick of teaching it. So either way, I'm uh, definitely rambling at this point, but I was pretty impressed with Vienna. Um, it, if it sounds familiar to you uh, mechanically, uh, that might be because it is somewhat similar in mechanics to a game called Kingsburg that came out a long time ago. I don't remember exactly, definitely way before 2015 and I've played it many times, but the last time I played it was long before 2015. And in that game, you had resources and you constructed buildings and there was more stuff going on. And from my vague recollections of Kingsburg, I like the idea of Vienna a little bit more just because of the uh, more simplistic nature of the rules teach while still having some good moments, like definitely some big groans that happen when certain dice go out to the point you're like, oh, I didn't think you'd do that. And like, I need a new plan and you know, all that kind of stuff. It just worked out really well. I was pleasantly surprised from a game I had never heard of before. And <laughs> it seems like it's very cheap if this sounds at all interesting to you because uh, my friend got it in the bargain bin of a bookstore. I haven't looked online, but considering this game had essentially no buzz ever, it would not surprise me if this one is an easy one to get and try. So yeah, I think that's going to wrap up the uh, Vienna spot and also uh, this overall impressions vlog. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, it's a little unusual to talk about old games like this, um, and I do have quite a few new games that I will be talking about soon. Uh, I have actually played the uh, new game Oceans that was sent to me um, from uh, North Star Games, and I really liked it, but I kind of want to play it again before I talk about it, and I liked it so much that I will very likely be playing it again soon. And I got the expansion to Railroad Revolution called Railroad Evolution, and it knocked my socks off. I played it once. I loved it. But again, I think I'm going to be playing that one soon uh, again. So hopefully I'll cover my impressions of those, which will probably be pretty glowing relatively soon. But either way, I think that's going to wrap up this podcast. Now, once again, if you have any comments about anything that I've said so far, then please head on over to the YouTube page for the vlog that this came from. And once again, you can find a link to that down in the description. Thanks for listening.